MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. This is the series on Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department, and it's by former federal and state prosecutor Ellie Honig. In the first episode, I covered pages 1 through 36, and the, the you know those were the first three chapters, but today we'll be going over pages 37 to 77. The chapters are called The Mueller Investigation. Well, we might know something about that. Uh, chapter 5 is Take a Shot. Chapter 6 is Ukraine, and Chapter 7 is Podium Privilege. For a little context about what's going on in the news this week, for when people listen to this series many years from now and uh, are wondering how this sort of is, as we're reading this book, how it's fitting into the news of the day, Trump ally and former head of the president's inaugural committee, Tom Barrick, was indicted and arrested on seven counts in the Eastern District of New York for conspiracy to lobby as a foreign agent on behalf of the United Arab Emirates and failure to register as a foreign agent, and then a bunch of false statements, 1,001 charges. Though it should be noted, the foreign agent registration charge is not under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. It's under another statute that specifically charges him with acting at the direction of senior officials of a foreign government, namely the United Arab Emirates. His bail hearing was moved up after a surprise arrest at his home in Los Angeles, and he's been released on a $250 million bond and will be required to wear an ankle monitor, stay in the vicinity of either California or the Eastern District of New York, be subject to a curfew, and he's not allowed to spend more than $50,000 on anything. I have never seen a spending cap placed on anyone that's bonded out of jail before. But, you know, I've only been covering these kinds of hearings for a few years now. So I asked around and a former prosecutor told me they've seen it once and that the $50,000 spending limit is likely to prevent him from fleeing the country. He's got a bunch of private jets, a bunch of passports. We'll see how it goes. Uh, that hearing is going to be tomorrow morning. Uh, my money is on that he'll, he'll show up, but we'll see what happens. So with that in mind, and with the reporting that two Democratic congressmen are asking the Department of Justice to investigate why the Eastern District of New York did not charge him last year, because it's being reported that they had enough evidence to do so, and to do it well before that 60-day window where the Department of Justice doesn't like to make any big political moves, I had posited as have many former prosecutors, that they were perhaps, the prosecutors were perhaps waiting for a more favorable administration to avoid being blocked or having Barrick be pardoned by the former president. We will know more soon, but that kind of corruption in the Department of Justice is at the heart of the prosecutor's code, so aptly illustrated in Ellie's book. 
The first chapter I'm going to cover here in this episode is about Barr and the Mueller investigation. And if how that was handled by Barr and the Trump Department of Justice was any indication of the level of corruption, it's no wonder prosecutors in other offices, like in the Barrett case, may have been reluctant to pursue indictments of Trump allies. Ellie opens on page 37 with another anecdote about one of the uh, over 100 mafia cases he prosecuted during his time. Uh, The target was a woman, Anne, I think it's Chiravano. She kept the books at the local union headquarters, serving as the eyes and ears for the mob and facilitating a bunch of rackets. When they identified her as a key conduit between the mafia and the union, the FBI interviewed her and she made a couple of materially false statements to them. She eventually pled guilty to obstruction, and she was sentenced to five months in prison. Ellie says here, quote, for those keeping score, Anne did five months because she lied to the FBI about two facts. But Trump tried to persuade the FBI director to drop a criminal case against a political ally, fired the FBI director in an effort to end an investigation into him, tried to fire the special counsel, instructed the White House counsel to lie about that and create a false document, and dangled and delivered pardons to prevent potential witnesses from talking. Yet, according to Bill Barr, Trump committed no crime at all, unquote. Now, it was clear to all of us at the time that Barr was the reason Trump walked away from the Mueller probe unscathed. But there were many other players, but none so big as the former attorney general. Not only did Barr inappropriately redact the Mueller report to hide the breadth and depth of Russian interference— which is such a national security problem. He then wrote a four-page summary incorrectly exonerating the president and then sat on the report for almost four weeks while the media ran with the whole Trump has been exonerated message. Not us, but, you know, a lot. Uh, Given that Barr only had the report for a couple of days before making his four-page conclusions, it's unlikely he was able to digest the entire thing with all the footnotes in that time frame. You know, we took 20 weeks to dig through it. And if you want, there is a 20-part series in the Mueller She Wrote podcast feed going through the thing line by line. And that's the redacted version. (laughs) So since the book was published, this book by Ellie, we also learned about the March 2019 Office of Legal Counsel memo that Barr used to make his determination that Trump did not obstruct justice, a determination he had clearly made before he was even confirmed as we went over in the confirmation chapter of Ellie's book, talking about that memo, the 18-page memo he wrote about Mueller being asinine and the president can't obstruct justice, etc., his, his audition memo. He was asked to release the memo in a FOIA case. This is now I'm talking about the 2019 memo. But he withheld it, citing that he, there was attorney-client privilege and a deliberative process privilege, exemptions to the FOIA requests. Judge Amy Berman Jackson vehemently disagreed, and ordered Biden's Department of Justice to release the memo in full. Well, they released the first part of it, but held the second part, requesting a stay pending appeal of Judge Jackson's decision, claiming that the deliberative process privilege still applied. That dispute is currently being litigated, but Judge Jackson totally pulled apart Barr's assertion that they deliberated on the legal questions. But he lied to the court about why he was withholding that document, and the court's not happy about it. We, of course, will keep you posted on that case in the Daily Beans and on Mueller, she wrote, on those podcasts. Ellie then goes on to discuss Mueller's letter to Barr, which we talked about in depth in a Mueller, she wrote episode with Andy McCabe called Mueller Goes to Paper. For Mueller to put his objections down in an official document, that means he had to be fuming. We also learned that there were phone calls and another letter that we haven't seen yet. 
I would like to see those. Barr even lied to Congress about those communications, saying he didn't know about any concerns from, quote, members of the special counsel's team. Probably a technicality, since it was Mueller himself that objected. Ellie then goes over the suspicious timeline about the release of the Mueller report. Mueller sent his report to Barr on March 22nd in 2019. Barr issued his four-page letter two days later, March 24th. But Barr sat on the report for 27 days until April 18th. During that time, Barr testified to Congress and held a press conference offering the public his take on the report. So he did nearly a month-long public relations tour spinning his version before any of us got to lay eyes on it. And Ellie does an amazing job in this chapter breaking down some of the bigger lies in the Barr four-page summary. I highly recommend and encourage you to read Barr's letter and then take a look at Ellie's breakdown starting on page 46 of the book. Ellie then goes on to say, Some of the blame here falls on Mueller for leaving the barn door open for Barr to drive a truck through, basically, with his determination that the Department of Justice would not pursue obstruction of justice charges. Now, folks who have listened to the Mueller She Wrote podcast and Daily Beans know where I stand on this matter. Mueller's caution, in my view, allowed him to finish his investigations, and he smartly handed off 14 cases. We've already seen the fruits of those decisions, including Stone, Cohen, and most recently Tom Barrick, because the New York Times has reported charges against Barrick did arise out of a case handed off by Mueller to the Eastern District. Stone and Cohen were prosecuted successfully. And had Mueller crossed some imaginary red line in Trump's head and Trump were able to successfully fire him, we would not have preserved the evidence in the obstruction of justice case, nor would we have volume uh, one of the Mueller report or, or the entirety of volume two, both extremely important information. Ellie's take here is that Mueller twisted himself into a pretzel, reasoning that it would be unfair to declare that Trump had committed a crime. Mueller explained it would actually be unconstitutional because Trump wouldn't have been able to face his accuser in a court of law because you can't indict a sitting president, according to that Office of Legal Counsel memo, which we knew from the beginning Mueller was going to abide by. My concern is that if Mueller had made the determination that Trump obstructed justice, Trump could have a pretty good appeal if Merrick Garland ever decides to charge him with obstruction. We don't know if that's going to happen or not yet. Ellie says Mueller's justification suffers in retrospect, though, saying first that Trump never had a problem defending himself in public, and secondly, he would have had the chance to defend himself in a court of law were he ever charged after he left office. And Ellie makes a good point here. If Mueller concluded Trump committed obstruction of justice but did not charge him, and then Trump were charged after he left office by our current Department of Justice and was tried and convicted, and then Trump tried to appeal on Mueller's declaration saying, I never got a chance to face my accuser. He would be saying that after being convicted in a court of law where he would have, in fact, faced his accuser. I think Mueller was also thinking about not tainting a future jury pool, though, but that kind of appeal is very hard to win when arguing that the jury knew too much when you're the president and you're the one talking about it all the time. Harder argument than the Sixth Amendment one I was just talking about. And something else to consider, Andrew Weissman, lead prosecutor on Team Manafort in Mueller's office, according to Ellie's book here and according to public reporting, has since said that Mueller actually notified Barr weeks in advance that his report would not contain any legal recommendations. Ellie says, quote, Barr deviously stayed silent, let Mueller take the pass, and then filled the void with his own distortions. Probably why Mueller was so pissed and went to paper and called him so many times. In any case, we are where we are, and the charges are there for the indicting. 
and whether or not Garland pursues them will say a lot to me about the seriousness with which he declares that no one is above the law. He has until, I think, next year before the statute of limitations tolls on, on those obstruction of justice charges, unless, of course, you count the dangling of pardons, which is probably what's outlined in the second half of that bar memo that this Department of Justice doesn't want to release. Is it because they're investigating that? Is it because they want to pursue this? Because if those pardons, which were finally executed in December of 2020, can be connected to this scheme, this entire scheme, then that means the statute of limitations doesn't toll until 2025. Anyhow, the next chapter is called Take a Shot. It begins on page 57, and it's the signature Ellie anecdote that's central to one of the core concepts of the book, and I encourage you to read it. In sum, I'll sum it up for you. It's the story of a limo driver for the Gambino family named Santos, and Ellie wanted to flip him, but they didn't really have much to squeeze him with. They had one pretty lightweight charge and not a lot of evidence to back it up, but Ellie drafted a complaint and thought, it's not much, but let's give it a shot. And it worked. They flipped him. And that led to the largest coordinated single-day mafia takedown in U.S. history. That shows the importance of taking a shot. And that concept leads to the next chapter about Ukraine. Because when it came time for Barr to decide whether or not to prosecute Trump, or at least investigate Trump with regards to Ukraine, Barr looked the other way, despite loads of evidence. I've actually scribbled here in the margins of the book... Uh, as the chapter on Ukraine begins, quote, think of all that Barr could have blocked or caused not to be charged. The remaining 12 cases in Appendix D of the Mueller report, and then how now the Southern District of New York has gone forward with executing the Rudy search warrant, and we've learned that the Eastern District of New York is investigating Russian-backed Ukraine interference in the 2020 election. Now, I scribbled that note before Tom Barrick was indicted. <laughs> I had tweeted in 2019 that Barrick should be charged with being an unregistered foreign agent. But we, uh, we had all kind of forgotten about it until the arrest last week. Anyhow, Ukraine. The chapter opens with Ellie saying that if Barr had gotten his way, the world would never have learned about the Ukraine scandal. I personally, AG, I remember the day, the hour that I learned about it. We were going on stage in Chicago at Lincoln Hall on July 27th in 2019. Nadler and the House Judiciary that day had just filed for the underlying Mueller documents under Article I powers of impeachment. So I popped some champagne and declared that the official beginning of impeachment proceedings. But apparently it's only impeachment when it comes from the impeachment region of France. Uh, but in any case, we were on stage with Renato Mariotti, host of the On Topic podcast that night, when we got the news that Schiff had a whistleblower with some incredibly disturbing information. As we know, within two months, Nancy Pelosi would announce impeachment proceedings in the Ukraine scandal, and we know the story well. Trump blackmailed the president of Ukraine, insisting that he announce an investigation, just announce, not actually complete, announce an investigation into Biden, and in exchange, Trump would release the desperately needed aid Ukraine needed to fight its hot war, ongoing hot war with Russia. Ellie describes in this chapter the mountains of evidence that would have predicated the opening of an investigation. I've talked to Andrew McCabe about this with regards to the Russia investigation, right? Predication for an investigation. And McCabe said, with the amount of evidence they had in the Russia investigation, they would actually be derelict in their duty if they did not open a probe. Ellie says here, quote, the failure of Barr and the Justice Department to open a criminal investigation relating to the Ukraine scandal is indefensible. 
The Ukraine scandal had it all. Bribery, extortion, violations of the Impoundment Act, which prevent the executive branch from blocking congressionally appropriated funds, lies to Congress, just so much criminal fuckery. Then obstruction of justice by destroying meeting notes and hiding the transcripts in the classified system, that NICE system that required a code word to limit the number of eyes on it because it was fucking criminal. Then, as impeachment progressed, Barr helped Trump stonewall the process and helped him beat the rap. I personally believe what Barr did in the Ukraine matter amounts to criminal obstruction of justice. He should be investigated and convicted, too. The final chapter I'm going to cover today is called Podium Privilege, and it starts on page 73. It's a short chapter, and I want you to read it yourself. It's because it's one of these great anecdotes, so well written by Ellie, and it has to do with a process that prosecutors go through called a moot, where they basically run through their case in front of other prosecutors, which sounds like a nightmare. The moral of the story here is that when they provide constructive criticism, they do it behind closed doors. You never do it in public. He says, quote, real prosecutors don't undercut one another after the fact. But that is precisely what Barr did in the Flynn case and the Stone case. And we will get into those next week. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the MSW Book Club. For next time, please read pages 78 to 126. And until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter, and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.